one announcement before we get started. See, you can tell it's not Memorex this morning. One announcement, we are, uh, we should have started announcing this earlier, but due to the circumstances, we didn't. And Al, you need to see me to get the uh, printed matter that we need to put in the bulletin. Um, we're going to have a Bible conference next month with uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. And this is something you should uh, publicize wherever you are and invite your friends to. This is going to be uh, quite interesting. Arnold is, has an interesting story because he was born to Polish Jewish parents in Siberia. His parents had fled from the Nazi invasion of Poland in 1939, and he was born while they were, uh, or just after his father was released from prison in Siberia. And then after the war in 1947, you hear me okay? Can y'all hear me okay? Oh, they can hear me okay. I turn up your hearing aid. <laughs> so after the war, they managed to get out of Siberia on the uh, sort of Jewish Underground Railroad, and they um, uh, made it to Brooklyn. And just prior to his bar mitzvah, a missionary with the American Board of Missions to the Jews got to Arnold with the gospel, and he trusted the Lord. He was never bar mitzvahed. He um, later went to Cedarville College in the early 60s, some decade before Dan Ingram went there. And then he went through Dallas Seminary with people we know like Charlie Clough and George Meisinger and a number of other people. Arnold is also a member of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. He, um, he founded a mission organization to the Jews called Ariel Ministries. Right after he graduated from Dallas, he went over to Israel, and after two years, they kicked him out because he was leading too many Jews to the Lord. So he went to a place called San Antonio, Texas, where he headquartered his ministry and then later moved it to the Southern California area. And he's going to be here speaking on highlights of the life of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. So he's going to go through the life of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. I wish I could be here. I had scheduled this two years ago, and in the providence of God, with the events this last uh, January, with the death of my mother, I'm going to have to go back to Houston. Fortunately, I'd already scheduled a trip at that time, and uh, I'm just going to stay over the weekend since the pulpit will be taken care of, and I've got many more uh, responsibilities to take care of there. And uh, I appreciate all of the uh, the cards and uh, prayers from everybody in the congregation. This has been a uh, tough time, but it's not nearly as tough as I anticipated because uh, my parents' situation I always thought was a house of cards with my father totally dependent on my mother since he's in the early stages of Alzheimer's and my mother depended upon my father because she was paralyzed over 75% of her body and when one was not there then uh, the other person really was left floundering and uh, with the, the uh, death of my mother I just had no clue how I was going to solve the problems with, with my father. And uh, you see, the reason they called him the golden years is because you have to have a lot of gold in order to make it. And um, just take that as a word to, of advice. You know, there are a lot of things that um, most of you ought to be doing now, most of us ought to be doing now, 
that I learn in a situation like this, and that is having all your paperwork together, all your wills together. And if you can, get with a local funeral home and prearrange your funeral. During one of the times in my life when I was not pastoring, I uh, worked for a funeral home and sold pre-need funerals. And it's amazing how many people don't want to face the inevitable, and that is sooner or later we're all going to die. And the worst thing that we can do is to leave all those decisions to our children at that point in time. Uh, make the decisions ahead of time, pay for it ahead of time. I think funerals are the most uh, rapidly uh, what inflationary, most inflationary area of sector of the economy. I think it doubles in price almost every four or five years. So, um, you know, that's something that I had done for my parents uh, when I was working there because I could get them a great discount. And so, uh, you know, the day of the, the the day we had to go to the uh, to the funeral home, uh, we spent an hour with the funeral director, and the funeral director said, told told me afterwards that if we hadn't prearranged everything, it would have been two or three hours. Now, just think about how much you really want to spend, how much time you really want to spend in a funeral director's office at that point in time. So, just a, a word of. Uh, encouragement and application there, but it uh, was remarkable how the Lord provided, uh, in His grace, provided a lot of uh, things for us, provided uh, a state, state contact with a state agency that uh, was able to take care of uh, an evening worker to come in and, and uh, be there in the house with my dad, as well as pick up about half the uh, uh, pay for the morning uh, lady who comes in in the morning. So that handled everything. We, could, we were going to be able to keep my dad in the house for a while, and uh, hopefully indefinitely with that arrangement. So, you know, that was just one of many ways in which the Lord worked things out because I was looking at being an only child. I was looking at some, uh, you know, all kinds of things that could go wrong, and the Lord just really solved all the problems, which is a real testimony to the reality of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, that when we trust in the Lord, He makes our paths straight. And He works out the details. And even while I was running around trying to talk to social workers and the VA and all the uh, trying to find out what all the options were, um, this other just came along and dropped in my lap. So, you know, the Lord does work in, uh, and supplies all of our needs. Well, before we get started, we need to make sure we're ready to study God's Word. And I don't know about you, but I had to take some time yesterday to figure out just where in the world I stopped and what was going on. I'm sure that's true for you. We just started 1 Corinthians, and probably need to review everything from the first two weeks, but we won't. We will press on. But before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then... Uh, or opportunity for confession of sin, use of 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to study your word. We thank you that your word is absolute truth, that it is a an absolute guide to our thinking, and that as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, we begin to learn the nature of reality, and as we study the nature of reality, then that in turn should affect 
the decisions that we make. Father, now as we study these important truths in 1 Corinthians, help us to understand them and see how they impact our daily decisions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we began our study some five or six weeks ago. It seems like I've been gone forever. I think in the last six or seven weeks I've been here for two, and uh, maybe it's longer than that, but nevertheless, we began a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 back in January, and we began by looking at Acts chapter 18, where we saw that Paul arrived in Corinth on his second missionary journey. He had left Athens where he had very little response, and then he went headed almost due west from Athens to Corinth. Uh, Corinth is not marked on this map on the screen overhead, but Corinth is located just at the tip of the pointer here on the what would be the west side of the Isthmus of Corinth. This, yeah? Oh, it's not on. What? There we go. Okay. On the west side of the Isthmus of Corinth there. And this is what made Corinth famous is because it was a uh, port city. You had these two bays, gulfs to the uh, east and west of the Isthmus, and it was easier to haul cargo from a ship on the on the southeast side to one on the northwest side simply because of the dangers of trying to go around the Peloponnesian Peninsula. The, the waters here were extremely rough, and so were the winds, and it was almost too much for vessels that day and time. So Corinth, sitting just to the west of the Isthmus, was a major port area, and there were people who came from all over the world who settled there, sailors that, and uh, uh, merchants. Jew, there was a large Jewish community there. There was a large Roman community there because Caesar had reestablished the city in 44 uh, B.C. and had peopled it with citizens, Roman citizens. And uh, so with it, you had every religious... Uh, religious system known in the ancient world was present and it was known for its licentiousness and it was known for uh, various other uh, problems but it was a large one of the largest areas in the ancient world and of course because of that religious background and because of the uh, uh, multicultural impact there the people were saved from that background, and that provided the cultural framework within which they looked at reality. And as a result of not exchanging the human viewpoint they had picked up from the culture with the divine viewpoint from the Word, they continued to have major problems. And we saw that there were major problems in the church, that, that in the first chapter Paul talks about the fact that there were internal divisions, they were contentious, they were argumentative, they focused on personalities rather than content. This is a problem we have even in churches today. These churches make an issue, and some pastors make an issue out of their own personality. And so churches develop personality cults for the pastor, whether that's good or bad, but it always creates a problem. I know of situations where you have a pastor. For example, I knew of a, 
the situation in First Baptist of Dallas where W.A. Criswell was a pastor there for 55 years and they loved their pastor and it became very difficult as he began to fail in the in the pastor because of his years. He was about 86 or 87. It was very difficult for them to uh, to ask him to retire. And so they ended up putting all the emphasis on the pastor rather than on the congregation. And it is the local church that is instituted by God and not the pastor. You don't put the emphasis on the pastor and his personality. You put the emphasis on the teaching of doctrine and the feeding of the sheep because that's the command that Jesus gave is to feed the sheep. And when the pastor gets to a point where he can't feed the sheep, then that pastor needs to retire or exchange his ministry for some other other ministry. And uh, it's too often that we put our emphasis in churches on uh, personalities. And there have been some situations, and some of you are very familiar with some, more familiar with some of this than others, where pastors have made an issue out of their own personality, and that always produces cliques and fan clubs and all kinds of internal conflicts in a local congregation. Furthermore, they had a problem with... Uh, sexual immorality and fornication. They had problems with uh, in, uh, not what we would call technical incest, but it was a, a relationship that was at least uh, uh, something that was unacceptable by even the unbelievers in Corinth, and that's covered in chapter 5. And then they had problems with um, idolatry and, and dealing with the weaker brethren. They also had problems with taking one another to court and, and getting involved in lawsuits with other Christians. And that is always wrong. It doesn't matter what the details are. It is always wrong in a personal issue to take another believer to court. Uh, we'll deal with that and all of its ramifications when we get there. There was also the abuse of grace, and that's covered in chapters 8 through 10, problems in the, in the worship service. There was chaos in the worship service because uh, the women were dressing like like prostitutes, basically, and indicating a rejection of the authority of their husbands. So there's an authority breakdown. They were getting drunk in the communion service. They were distorting the spiritual gifts. And as they faced all of these um, problems, uh, Paul addresses the solution to these problems in this epistle. And that's what's important for us to understand is as they look at all these practical daily problems, many of which we have today, in local churches, problems with marriage, problems of immorality, problems um, with uh, arrogance, problems of, uh, of uh, personality cults and, and cliques developing in churches. As we face all these different problems, it's important to understand how Paul handled these problems because he focuses on what the same thing that I've been teaching again and again and again over the last uh, four years here, and that is doctrinal problem-solving devices. He doesn't go in for talk therapy. He doesn't go into trying to figure out if they have some sort of self-image problem, which is just more worldliness that we have today. He doesn't use this kind of psychobabble approach that is common today. He deals with the fundamental doctrinal issues. He, he focuses on some of the deeper doctrines of Scripture. And he spends time developing those doctrines. And see, we live in an age today when people have rejected doctrine as a solution. They say, well, doctrine doesn't work. No, doctrine always works. The problem is you're not applying it consistently. 
And in almost every situation that I've run into where I've known the facts, when I hear somebody say the doctrine doesn't work, it is because either A, they never truly understood the doctrine they were allegedly applying to begin with, or they weren't applying it like they thought they were. But doctrine always works because it is the truth that comes from God. So it's important for us to understand how Paul handles these problems methodologically because that gives us a pattern for handling any and every problem that we face in our own lives. Now, as we look at this epistle, uh, we see just a, a really messy situation in this congregation, and I think that's one reason that the Lord has included this in the Scriptures, is because there are so many problems, and these problems represent problems that churches and individuals have faced down through the centuries. And uh, as we grow and develop as believers, and as we study the Word, the more we become aware of the problems that we have, because we become more conscious of our own sin nature and what sin is, that sin just isn't, uh, you know, the nasty nine or the terrible two. It uh, has to do more... more uh, more so with mental attitude sins and emotional sins that are the most destructive sins and that are the sins that really underlie and motivate the overt sins. And the more we become aware of what those sins are, and that's one reason I try to list as many different ones as I can because so often what happens is we just don't think of those in our daily life as being sins. And yet when we're bitter and when we're angry, when we are... Um, Often when we are frustrated in life, it's because we're not focusing on the grace of God. And when we um, express our anger in different ways, or whether it's abuse in the home or violence in the home, or whether it's a matter of uh, honesty, financial honesty on our income tax return. Now I'm stepping on toes. Uh, whatever it might be, uh, we know that as a believer we have to address these from the Scriptures. And the more we're aware of sin, the more we're aware of how fouled up we are and how messed up other people are. And yet, as Paul looks at this congregation of the Corinthians, and in light of all of their problems and all of the foul-ups and all the divisions and argumentativeness and sexual immorality, the first thing out of his mouth in verse, after he gets past the salutation in verse 4, is to say, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to take some time to look at the structure here because this helps us to understand what we should be thanking God for. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 4 that we are to give thanks for all things, and in 1 Thessalonians, to give thanks in all things. And yet, so often what we do is we try to be thankful for things and problems that we're not really thankful for, and then we think there's, there's something wrong with our spiritual life because I really can't be thankful that I'm having all of these problems. I want you to notice that when Paul thanks the Lord here, he doesn't thank him for the screwed-up Corinthians and their multiple problems. That's not the focus. See, Thanksgiving is not focusing on the problem, but on the God who provides a solution behind the problem. Now, he begins with the verb Eucharisto in the present active indicative, 
which indicates a durative action. This is something that he is doing at the present time, but it also has a retroactive in emphasis in that he has been uh, thanking God. All, the always indicates that this is something that began at the moment of his arrival in Corinth with the first convert. And he began, has begun to thank God because of what happened at the instant of salvation for that particular individual and what they received. Well, just a point of application, we need to recognize that gratitude is the barometer of our spiritual uh, life, and it indicates our orientation to grace. Uh, the English word gratitude and the English word grace both have their source in the Latin word gratia. Gratitude is the response to God's grace. So to be grateful, we have to understand what God's grace is and how it is manifested in our own life. So Paul says he thanks God. Now, the English word thank we use so frequently in a superficial manner. We thank people for this and we thank people for that, and often it just comes out of our mouth because we've been well-trained and we've been taught to say thank you for various things. And uh, yet there's no real heartfelt gratitude at the time. It's just a rather superficial comment. But what we find in the Scriptures is that thanks is much more than a simple superficial response. In the Old Testament, it is often a translation of the Hebrew word toda, which also means to praise, to praise God. And so thanksgiving and the praise of God were seen as being related to one another. And it has the idea of someone, let's say, an event that happened this last week when Sarah Hughes won the gold, and people were cheering her on because of what she had done. That is the idea in praise in the Scriptures. And, and we say, you know, when we see an athlete perform well, we cheer them on and we shout, way to go, and, and uh, uh, various other things in order to express our, our um, appreciation for their hard work and their appreciation for the skill that they uh, exhibited. And I don't mean in the kind of superficial pep rally sort of, event that happens in some churches today where they, uh, you know, cheer Jesus and all this other stuff. And that just lends itself to, to developing more and more the kind of superficial approach to worship and superficial relationship to God that, is, um, that indicates the shallowness of the spiritual life of the modern Christian. It is a praise that is related to, you know, in that kind of a praise situation, related to the individual and what they do. And so we can take that over and, sh and, and apply that to God, that praise and thanks are things that are God-centered. We praise Him for what He has done, and we're not praising Him in relationship to the circumstances. The circumstance is secondary. The praise is focused on who God is and what He is going to do, not a... Folk, not a circumstantial or circumstance-oriented praise. So Paul says, I thank my God always, and this indicates a continuous state of mind of the mature believer, is that he is always looking at what God is doing in the situation and not focusing on the circumstance. He is not thanking God for all their problems. He's not thanking God for their sexual immorality. He's not thanking God for their divisiveness. He is thanking God because of who God is and what he has provided. So he says, I thank my God always uh, concerning you. And here we have a construction in the Greek where it uses the, uh, 
see if I can find any any markers anymore. There we go. Uses a preposition in the Greek, peri, which is uh, P-E-R-I, and is equivalent to the Greek preposition huper, which is one that we're somewhat familiar with. Huper plus the genitive indicates substitution, as does peri. And these two prepositions are substitutionary prepositions. And here, when it's talking about prayer, Paul's prayer concerning you, it emphasizes intercessory prayer. Now, in the last couple of weeks while I've been gone, we went back over the uh, tapes on prayer, and we have an acronym for the major elements in prayer, and that's CATS. The C stands for Confession. We always have to confess our sins before we pray. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 66:18 that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So that doesn't mean that God in his omniscience is ignorant of your prayer, but that your prayer cannot be efficacious if we are out of fellowship. So we begin with, with confession. Adoration is the element of praise towards God, and this links to thanksgiving our expression of gratitude toward God. And then finally, supplication. Supplication has two elements to it. One is for others, which is intercessory prayer, and then for self, which is prayer of petition. So this is the breakdown of prayer, and Paul is exhibiting the intercessory prayer here that it emphasizes substitution. We are going to pray in the place of Someone else. We are going to pray for them. So Paul says that he is giving thanks uh, concerning them or as a substitute for them. And then the phrase, for the grace of God which was given you. And here we have another Greek preposition. And this is a preposition, a P, which is, has a causal EPI, has a causal Emphasis, but it is not a a strong cause like we'll see in a minute. But it is the sense of in reference to. So he is going to pray because of the grace of God. So his focus is on God's grace. That's what he's giving thanks for, uh, because of the grace of God. So thanksgiving again is grace oriented. It is not something that is that we just say superficially, but it has to do with understanding what God has supplied for us, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of horrible circumstances. And the more we understand and appreciate the grace of God and the dimensions of the grace of God, then the more we are moved to gratitude. We realize that everything that we have truly is not due to our own effort, our own energy, but is due to his grace. And even though at times it appears that we have certain results because we've worked hard or because we've studied hard, ultimately the results are due to the grace of God because there are many people who work hard and study hard and never seem to reap any level of reward for that work or that effort. So even when we have been involved in the process, the results are always from the grace of God. And grace always emphasizes God's benevolence and not our merit. So he, say, he, he is praying, he is giving thanks because of the grace of God 
but it is not just any broad grace of God. We've studied different categories of grace, and we have seen that there, there is a category called pre-salvation grace, which is related to common grace, the grace of God towards all irrespective of their salvation, whether they are believer or unbeliever. God provides the air we breathe, the food we eat, the jobs we have, and he supplies the freedom, for example, in this nation uh, for believer and unbeliever alike. Then there is salvation grace, where God provides everything we need for salvation through the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there is logistical grace for the believer or life support grace where God provides everything we need in order to stay alive and in order to learn the Word of God and grow as a believer. And then we have advanced grace blessings that are distributed to us as we grow and mature and develop capacity for those grace blessings. Now, when Paul states this, he thanks God for he thanks he is <clears throat> thanking God always concerning them for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. So this is not talking about pre-salvation grace. It's not talking about salvation grace. It is talking about the grace package that God gives at the instant of salvation to every single believer irrespective of who they are, what they've done, or how bad they've been, or how good they've been, God gives a grace package to every single believer that includes everything we need potentially to live the, the, the Christian life. And this is where Paul is going to focus his attention. He says, for the grace of God which was given you. And here we have, here we have the aorist passive participle of didomi. The aorist passive participle of didomi, the aorist tense, is a culminative aorist, which indicates that everything has been completed and it was all given at some time in the past. The aorist tense indicates past action. And the passive voice indicates that this is something that the uh, <coughs> subject of the verb received and did not give himself. So again, it emphasizes grace. The grace is based on who God is and what he decides to give, and it's not based on who and what we are. And this is a key verb that when we see it, we should always think in terms of God's grace and God's benevolence. Grace means undeserved favor or unmerited blessing. And God gives it to us irrespective of what we deserve. It's based on who he is and what Christ did on the cross. So he is thanking God for the grace of God, which was given to you. And there we have a dative of advantage. It's given for their advantage so that they can advance to spiritual maturity, which was given to them in Christ Jesus. And this is the key phrase in this section. It is the Greek preposition in plus the dative of sphere or the dative of association more specifically. We have this same phraseology. Back in verse 2, there he addressed them, these carnal, reprobate, reversionist Christians. He says, he addresses the letter to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified. We studied the word there, hagiosmos, meaning to be set apart. To those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus. And that's the same phrase. So we have it in verse 2. We have it again in verse 4, in Christ Jesus. 
and then again in verse 5, that in everything you were enriched. That is, you were made wealthy spiritually. You were made rich spiritually. You were given everything you would possibly need for your spiritual life, and then some. We were enriched in Him. So this is the key phrase, and it indicates the doctrine of positional truth. So you see that at the very beginning in his opening line of, uh, of, of the introduction to this epistle, Paul doesn't start off saying, oh, it's too bad you had these divisions. Let's figure out what the personality problems were. Let's uh, try to uh, get everybody together. He said, we're going to start with understanding who and what we are in Jesus Christ. We're going to start with an abstract doctrine, what a lot of people think is an abstract doctrine, called positional truth. And that's the foundation for being able to understand how to handle the problems. And the sad thing today is that very few pastors are teaching this even when they do uh, have a, quote, Bible study on Wednesday night or teach a Sunday school class. They don't want to get into something like this because, oh, it's too difficult. Uh, you know, this, this is going to scare some people away if I start talking about things like positional truth. They won't understand the word, so I've got to uh, dumb it down. Or we'll just talk about how to have a, have a, how to have a better marriage or how to manage your money or something that's practical. Well, you see, when Paul's going to address the marriage problems in Corinth, when Paul's going to address the morality problems in Corinth, when Paul's going to address the behavior problems in Corinth, he doesn't start way down the line somewhere with uh, some sort of superficial application. He starts at the starting point, which is understanding who we are in Jesus Christ as believers. And if you don't understand that, then it doesn't matter how much so-called practical stuff you give uh, on marriage, so much practical stuff you give on finances or relationships or anything else, it's not going to do you any good because it's all going to be a result of the works of the flesh. You have to start where God starts, not where stupid people start. You're not human viewpoint is never going to produce any level of spiritual growth. You have to start with doctrine. And that's why we emphasize doctrine here at Preston City Bible Church. So Paul begins with uh, their position in Christ. Now, one thing that we have to understand here is that in this Construction in plus a dative of association, we learn a couple of principles. The first is that what God gives or provides for every believer, He graciously gives because of association with Christ. See, these blessings are ours in Christ. That's why they are ours, because of our association with Christ. God does not give them apart from Christ. So the believer has to be in Christ or in association with Christ, which occurs at the instant of salvation, in order to uh, have these manifold blessings. And it's not based on who we are or what we do or do not do. It's based on who God is, that is, His essence, His justice, His righteousness, His immutability, and on what Christ did at the cross. Now, the other principle that we have to have we have to pay attention to is to be careful when you give thanks that what you're giving thanks for is something that is the work of God and not something that is just the normal operation of human experience. See, sometimes we get run away with ourselves and we're thanking God for all kinds of things and some of these things are just the natural consequences of, of human actions and human decisions and are not necessarily attributable to God. 
So before we go any further, we have to go through the doctrine of positional truth. Now, last time I hit it superficially, and this time we're going to hit it in a little more detail. So first of all, point number one, we have to get a good definition of positional truth. Positional truth has to do with our legal standing before God. That's why it's the term positional. It has to do with our legal standing or our position in Christ. Therefore, the term positional truth is equivalent to the term positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is what Paul referred to back in verse 2, to those who have been sanctified. That is, at the point of salvation, we are set apart in Christ. Every single believer is set apart in Christ. It doesn't have to do with how carnal you are or how uh, so-called spiritual you are, how moral you are, how immoral you are. It has to do with what God is doing for each one of us at that instant of salvation. So positional truth is equivalent to positional sanctification and has to, and is the foundational reality for the spiritual life. If you don't understand positional truth, I'll guarantee you'll never make it in the spiritual life. Because that, that when Paul in Romans, and we studied this a couple of years ago in our, in our sanctification series in Romans 6 through 8, Romans 6 begins with positional truth. So all the practical guidelines that Paul gives on spiritual life in Romans 6, 7, and 8 finds its starting point in positional truth. And if you don't understand it, then you don't understand what, what, you, what, your, realities, what your spiritual realities are. So let's have a definition. Positional truth is defined as the uniting of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection and ascension, when Christ was accepted in heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So there is a legal uniting of the believer with Christ at the instant of salvation. And there's an identification of the believer with Christ's death. And because of that identification, we are dead to the sin nature. It's still there, but it is no longer the tyrant it was before. The burial and resurrection have to do with the fact that we are given new life in Christ and new abilities and potentialities in Christ. So this is our basic definition. The uniting of the believer with Christ in his death, burial, his resurrection, and ascension. And the ascension is important because that's when Christ was accepted in heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So we are accepted by God, the instant of salvation, not based on who and what we are, but on who and what Jesus Christ is. That's our starting point. Point number two, the mechanics of how positional truth is accomplished is by the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to go through the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that underlies all of this as well. But I'm import I, I stress the phraseology here. Everywhere you find the reference to baptism by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, it always uses the same phraseology in the Greek, and that is it's the, the verb baptizo plus the prepositional phrase in numity. And that's in plus the instrumental dative, which implies means. And see, what happens in English is that kind of phraseology can be expressed through a number of English prepositions. So you have in some places baptism with the Spirit. In other places you have baptism of the Spirit. In other places baptism by the Spirit. And that led 
scholars at one point to think that there were, because they didn't know Greek, to think that there were different baptisms of by with the Holy Spirit. And some occurred at salvation, some occurred after salvation. That's the charismatic problem. And uh, there's only one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. It is an identification that is accomplished by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that is defined as Christ. Christ, we'll look into this in a little more detail when we get to the doctrine of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Christ is always the subject of the verb in the gospel passages. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where it says, For by one Spirit we have been baptized into one body, sounds like it is, because it's a passive verb, sounds like the, by the Holy Spirit, expresses the performer of the action. That's how it would come across in English with a passive verb. But everywhere else you have this phraseology, the end clause, end plus the dative of pneuma, always indicates the means by which the baptism is accomplished. In the gospel passages, the... Uh, subject of the verb is always Christ. Therefore, when you add or put those passages together, we see that that uh, it is Jesus Christ who performs the action, and He uses the Holy Spirit to affect our union with Christ. And this is seen in First Corinthians twelve thirteen and Ephesians four verse five, where we're told that there is one baptism, and that is the baptism of the of the Holy Spirit. So now this is our chart. Some of you have known this so much, it's engraved in your souls, but this is new for others of you. And if you're getting bored watching this, just wait. We're going to have to go through this again and again and again. And I just want to drill it into your soul so you can't forget it. There's two spheres of relationship that we talk about in the spiritual life. There's our eternal realities and our temporal realities. The eternal realities are what undergird the temporal realities of our spiritual life. And so in order to understand what's going to happen in this right circle, we have to come to grips with what's happening in the left circle, which is our eternal realities. This is the sphere of being in Christ. That's why the dative uses a dative of sphere, dative of location or association. At the instant of salvation, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, which means that we are placed in Christ. We are identified with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. This then is going to become foundational as we develop all of the uh, ramifications of it. Point number three. Positional truth guarantees the believer's eternal security. This is seen in Romans 8:38 and 39, where Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Same phraseology. This is our positional truth which guarantees that we have eternal security and that we can never lose our salvation. You can't lose what you never worked for to begin with. It is a free gift, and God does not take back his gifts. It's a free gift. So positional truth guarantees the believer's eternal security. Point number four, positional truth belongs to all categories of believers. It belongs to reversionists. It belongs to immature believers. It belongs to spiritually mature believers. And it belongs to carnal believers. It is the ultimate reality that undergirds everything in the spiritual life. 
because we are in union with Christ, and that is an act of Jesus Christ using the Holy Spirit to effect that union, then there is no act, there is no thought, there is nothing that you or I can do that can ever reverse what happens at the point of salvation with regard to the baptism by the Holy Spirit. You know, people who say that you can lose your salvation are in effect saying that you can be baptized by the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and then you lose it. And then you get it back. And then you can lose it. And, and that shows that they don't have a clue what baptism by the Holy Spirit means or what identification with Christ means. It is a radical new reality that is irreversible. Point number five. Positional truth qualifies the believer to live with God forever. Positional truth qualifies the believer to live with God forever because the believer's sins have been paid for. See, in order to live in heaven, we have to have three things happen, basically. First of all, we have to have our sins paid for. That took place on the cross, and that is expressed by that preposition I referred to earlier, uh, huper. Huper plus the genitive of advantage indicates that... that uh, Christ died as a substitute for us. He actually paid the penalty. You see, the key phrase there is substitute. Now, I got embroiled in these discussions when I was down in Houston over the last few weeks, so let me try to make this clear. There are two positions historically in the church related to the atonement, and that is... And we're talking about here the extent of the atonement or answering the question, for whom did Christ die? There is the Reformed or Calvinistic view, which is limited atonement. And in this view, Christ died only for the elect. He did not die for everyone, but for only the elect. That view was first expressed dogmatically at the Synod of Dort in about 1615. And Dort is in Holland, and it was a factor in the Dutch Reformed Church. So this is the Calvinistic or Reformed doctrine. Christ died only for the elect. Then there is the position that we believe that Christ died for all that the extent of the atonement is unlimited. First uh, Corinthians 4.10 said that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. First Corinthians 2.2 says he's not only the propitiation for our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. So this is unlimited atonement. Christ died for all. But there are two ways of expressing that or understanding unlimited atonement. One view is a view that is probably the most common view that you will run across, and that is, for lack of a better term, I will call potential atonement. That Christ only died potentially for the sins of the lost. It's up to their volition as to whether or not it is uh, actual. And this is usually expressed by the definition that, um, see, the... I use an X to abbreviate Christ, just like you do in 
in Christmas because that is the Greek letter that expresses the first letter in, in Christos. So, uh, you know, you always find somebody gets bent out of shape when you abbreviate Christmas Xmas because they don't understand Greek and they don't understand what its origin was. It's just a form of shorthand so you don't have to write it out all the time. Uh, you have Christ's death is efficient or sufficient for all, but efficient only for the elect. Now, this is a classical view. This is the position that was held by held by Charles Ryrie. It's a position that's held by Louis Berry Chafer, John Walford. It's a position held probably by most. Um, theologians that we would respect. The problem with this view is, well, one problem is that I have read, I believe it's Lorraine Bettner, who is a Reformed theologian, that he uses the same definition as to define limited atonement. He uses that same definition to define limited atonement. And the problem with this view is, is that Let's put a chart up here. Here is time. We have the creation of the world down through the end of the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Great white throne judgment, you have unbelievers who are then sent to the lake of fire. Now, you come down here and you talk to um, somebody like Joe Brown down here, and he's in the lake of fire, and uh, he did not accept Christ as his Savior. And according to... The limited atonement position, you ask Joe, well, did Christ die for your sins? He says, no, he didn't. I wasn't one of the elect. Now, you ask Joe Brown, uh, under the unlimited atonement position that I just explained, you say, did Christ die for your sins? He said, well, it was only potential. I didn't accept it, so it wasn't applied, so no, he really didn't die for my sins. See, the, the problem here is understanding this word, substitution. Now, if I... You and I go out to dinner somewhere. Let's say we go to a fine steak restaurant and the bill's a couple hundred dollars. And I pick up the tab. Do you need to go pay the bill? No, you don't. Because I actually truly substituted for you and I paid the bill. So if you have, if, if the bill is actually paid, then it doesn't need to be paid again. If it's only potentially paid, so you can say, no, I really didn't, um, I don't accept it, so I've got to pay my own. It's paid for now twice, so the steak restaurant owner gets a double payment, so he gets off lucky. The whole thing hinges around this concept of substitution. Is Christ's substitution real, or is it simply potential? See, if it's potential then that means Christ didn't actually die as a substitute for the sins of the unbeliever. But the phraseology in the Greek is that he did. It is huper plus the genitive. He died as a substitute. So the third position, which I think solves many of the problems of limited atonement. See, I remember being hit with this the year before I went to Dallas Seminary. I sat down on the 
bed of a friend of mine in his dorm room in Dallas, and we argued about this for about two hours. But he, he always kept coming back to this concept of substitution, substitution, substitution. And so we have to understand that Christ did die for our sins. You see, three things have to happen in order to get into heaven. The first is your sins have to be paid for. That happened at the cross to, to tell us die. They're paid for. It is finished. But to get into heaven, you also have to have perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness only comes by faith alone in Christ alone. And at that instant, God gives you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the doctrine of imputation. If you don't believe in Christ, you don't receive that righteousness. And so condemnation comes because you have not believed in Jesus Christ, not because of your sin. John 3.18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because of his sin. No, it doesn't say that. It says, because he has not believed. Now, because if you don't believe, you are still unforgiven, and you are still in your sins. Now, in your sins does not mean and is not equivalent semantically to for your sins. It means you still are in your sins. You're still in the slave market of sin. The sins have been paid for, but you're still in your sins and you are unforgiven. The phrase in your sins is used a couple of places. Uh, Ephesians 2.1 is just one of them. So they are in their sins, but they are not paying the penalty for their sins. And then the third thing we need is eternal life. And eternal life is imputed to our human spirit at the instant of salvation. So the sins are paid for for everyone. Every unbeliever has his sins actually paid for, and that is the nature of substitution. So positional truth belongs to... Let me see, where were we? Positional truth qualifies the believer to live with God forever. And that is because his sins have been paid for, and at the instant of salvation, he is given the perfect righteousness of Christ and eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Point number six, positional truth creates a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, old things. That is, everything you were before you were saved, your slavery to the sin nature, everything else is um, done away with, and now you have new life in Jesus Christ. This is what God does for you, and it's grace, and it doesn't have anything to do with what we do for ourselves. So we are a new creature, a new entity. You don't feel that. You don't experience it. But nevertheless, it is our reality after salvation. Point number seven, positional truth is the basis for spiritual growth. It's the production of divine good as a result of spiritual growth. And it is a pattern of life that is compatible with royalty. We are now members of the royal family of God. We are royal high priests. And the basis for that new life comes by our position in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So positional truth, then, is the basis for spiritual growth. We now have freedom from enslavement to the sin nature so that we can truly choose not to sin. That was impossible prior to salvation. Even the good deeds that unbelievers do flow from a sin nature. There is no uh, nature within them that can produce anything other than that which is tainted by sin. Point number eight. 
Positional truth then is the basis for grace blessing. It is our position in Christ that's why we are blessed by grace, not anything that we do. It is that association with Christ that is the basis for all grace blessing after salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Now, that brings us to point number 9, which is what God has done for us in positional truth. What God has done for us in positional truth. Now, I'm going to stop here this morning, number one, to give my voice a rest and make it through the second hour. But number two, because this is important and it is, I think, more information on this point than we'll cover in the next couple of minutes. So I want to wrap up at this point. But positional truth is crucial. And... This allows, gives us the basis for understanding everything that we are to do in the Christian life and how to solve problems. Now, think about the problem-solving devices for a minute. We have foundational problem-solving devices. It starts with confession. Confession then gets us back in fellowship with the Lord, and we have the filling by means of God the Holy Spirit who teaches us doctrine, fills our soul with doctrine. Then the third problem-solving device is a faith rest drill. Faith rest drill starts with, number one, mixing our faith with the promises of God. These positional truth passages are promises of God. They're promises God has made that we are united with Christ, and because of that, there is a different reality. So part of understanding positional truth is a function of the faith rest drill, not just mixing faith with promises, but also uh, mixing faith with principles of doctrine. That then leads, skipping over the uh, fourth problem-solving device of grace orientation, it develops doctrinal orientation because the more we realize who and what we are in Christ, the more it changes the way we perceive reality, the more our thinking is aligned with, with the reality as God has described it, and that in turn affects the decisions we make and the life that we live. So this is how positional truth fits into the problem-solving uh, uh, scheme that we have developed over the years. So by understanding positional truth, it is a major factor in the faith rest drill, and it is also a major factor in uh, doctrinal orientation so that we can then move beyond uh, spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence, because when we get to that fifth problem-solving device of uh, our, our personal sense of our eternal destiny, that in turn, our, we have that eternal destiny because of our position in Christ, as we'll see under point number nine in the doctrine of positional truth. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that it is absolute truth and that it tells us what the reality is apart from our own experience and apart from our own feelings or emotions, apart from the circumstances that we face. Father, we thank you that your word has clearly described for us how we are to be saved, that it is not based on our own efforts, our own morality, our own good works, our own energy, but is based upon what you have done for us. It is exclusively dependent on you, and that is the message of grace. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is put your trust in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the means of your salvation. You don't have to 
pray a special prayer. You don't have to walk an aisle, raise your hand, make a bargain with God, reform your life, or join a church. Scriptures say, simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. God in his omniscience know what you have trusted for salvation. And because he knows what you have trusted for salvation, he then at that instant gives you eternal life. At that instant you are justified, you are placed in union with Jesus Christ. And all of these positional blessings are yours for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that you have given us. And may we come to understand these things so that they radically change the way we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.